I think there's a lot of opportunities for governments, companies, and organizations to really sit down with Indigenous communities and work on plans to help make Canada a better place, and especially with clean tech, because clean tech is going to hold high considerations of the environment and of the water, of the animals, of the plants, of our next future generation. Our generation, start the conversation, energy efficiency and conservation, out from the gutter, lift the nation, get out and get it, the information. Energy sovereignty, sustainability, and resilience are central components to global climate action, the protection of Mother Earth, and the safeguarding of generations to come. Tanse, hello, and welcome back to the Decolonizing Power podcast series, a series that will take you to three regions around the globe to explore how community-led and partnered clean energy projects have been successful. My name is Muskokwin James Harper, and I'm from Surgeon Lake Cree Nation in Treaty 8 Territory, and I'm joining you from my home here in Treaty 1 Territory, Winnipeg, Manitoba. It is an honor and a privilege to be co-hosting this series with my friend, Freddie Upe Campbell. Hi, hi. Thank you so much, Miskakwin James. Hello, folks, and welcome back. My name is Freddie Upe Campbell, and I'm a proud Metis woman with familial roots in Lac La Biche, as well as mixed settler lineage. I join you today from the traditional, unceded, unsurrendered territories of the Algonquin Anishinaabe Nation, and I want to extend my deep appreciation and gratitude for the past and present defenders of these lands. On this note, we would like to acknowledge that Indigenous Peoples Day is coming up on the 21st of June, and what better way to celebrate than to listen and learn from the inspiring story of Kiashkezaging Anishinaabe, also known as Gulbe First Nation. If you missed the first episode, you can go back and listen now. Otherwise, please continue with us as AJ shares some of the obstacles he and his team faced when they first started the Microgrid project, how to build a working relationship with your local provincial government, and how to secure funding or ask for funding and advocate for yourself. So throughout our conversation with with AJ, we'll be hearing a lot of references to Ontario Power Generation, or OPG, a regional utility who grants the necessary permits uh, and undergoes the necessary procedures for any type of project that will be interconnected into the energy system to proceed. And as we'll hear, this permitting process can be quite lengthy and complex, uh, which in itself acts as a barrier for communities to even get started on such initiatives. A lot of the permits are related to the environmental work, for example, um, the electrical interconnection, making sure that the system will remain reliable once a new clean microgrid is connected into it. Albeit that this kind of work is necessary to do, Communities commonly lack the capacity and resources to undertake such complex and thorough procedures. I think that's a great way to state it, James, and it really lays some groundwork for some things that we touch on in the episode today, 
There are also many resources that can be found online. And as AJ will mention, the Indigenous Clean Energy Network has many folks doing some amazing work to advance some of these clean energy processes and projects. So we invite you all to, to join us there. You know, when we first met with um, Indigenous Service Canada, we wanted to be excluded from the overall, the big, you know, lengthy environmental process. And not because we, you know, we didn't hold the environmental into high consider because we do. We just understand that um, sometimes all these um, processes will, will tie up a project and, you know, you might not achieve them. The elders knew, the community, chief and council, it was, it was a pristine land to build on. There was no archaeology concerns. There was no species at risk. You know, there was no um, medicines and stuff like that on the land. But once we went through the environmental process with OPG, we still couldn't get the permit for our project development partners to construct on there. And, um, you know, our JVs, who are a Gold Bay member company, cleared the land before we even got the permit. And I was scared. To their defenses, they... They had to take the steps necessary in order for this project to move forward. Because if they didn't clear the land, it would have went beyond the environmental process of uh, keeping the trees up there while the birds are nesting. You want to get those trees down so that the birds don't start building nests, building homes. You wanted to get it at the in the wintertime. So their defense was to clear the land. And then, you know, then we had to push hard for the permit. And then sure enough, right before the launch ceremony on March 20th, couple of days before we finally got the permit to give to our constructors. Um, so I was sweating bullets the whole time. I thought I was in deep trouble, you know, but that's just an example of our community having to be proactive and do what is necessary for a project to move forward because these permits or these licenses or whatever might actually jeopardize a project and jeopardize funding. If it wasn't for the First Nation to taking the steps necessary, our project probably would have dragged on for another year because we couldn't clear the land to move, start moving ahead. Thank you so much for sharing with us, AJ, and for that vulnerability. Well, we're on this topic of challenges and obstacles that you faced. Were, were there any times maybe you felt kept up at night or any worries that you weren't really sure how things were going to go? And if so, how did you work your way through these thoughts and moments? The one I just shared was was one example of Namer. Another one was once we had that uh, project, it was successful. We had the big ceremony and we tied it to the, we had it uh, on the powwow weekend. At the end of the weekend, I was feeling so good, you know, lifted. Uh, the community was proud and happy. And then a couple of weeks after that, the microgrid failed. Uh, there were some issues with the inverters, and I think I think it was the breaker switch too. And anyways, I felt like I was a big failure, and I felt like you know here you know you only get fifteen seconds of fame, and I guess that was <laughs> my fifteen minutes was up. You know that's that's how it goes though. You know there's ups, there's downs. Don't give up. I certainly had a rough week that week, but that wasn't the end of the project. So we, we made it known to our project development partners that we weren't going to accept the asset until it's functioning, until everything is working as it should, and you know that it projects the revenues that was said that it was going to project. Knowing that, and plus that this was the first of its kind in Canada, 
you know, when you're going through the first of its kind, you're going to have your learning points, your learning obstacles. And this was one of those. So yeah, although it was a nightmare, I humbled myself again. This is just learning. It's okay. Accept what it is and then go back to the drawing table with your project development partners and and work together at, at coming up with a solution for this. And we worked through it until we realized six months of stable operation where the microgrid has had no issues providing power to the community. So that's a big relief. You know, it takes a lot of hard work. It takes some ups and downs. It takes some humbling moments. It takes some nightmares. But at the end of those nightmares, you realize you wake up, it's okay. And uh, you just got to keep keep going. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And microgrids for sure still have a lot of, uh, you know, technical things to overcome. Uh, and I'm glad that it that it really worked out and, and it's it's going strong now. But, you know, in those moments of, of challenge and the feelings that you are going through, you know, for, for a lot of us, we rely on our support system. And I was just wondering if you had a support system like family and friends in your community when you were feeling, you know, not so not so good about the microgrid project and when things weren't really working, you know, were they there and you know, what did they say? What what really helped you? Yeah, I definitely had my my people I leaned on. You know, of course there's my fiance, um, precious. There was my Nokomis, my grandmother, um, Daryl Brown. Uh, who's uh, one of our energy advisors. He was one I would contact, uh, you know, whenever I was having a hard time. And uh, like I needed all, I would say, all those different directions. You know, my dad, and I'd call Wilford, Chief Wilford now and then. Depending on what the issue was, I would I would call them and, you know, have a conversation a quick, is, am I doing it right? Uh, is this how how it should be done? Or is there anything that I can do better? Um, but I would have to say the one thing that really brought peace to my nightmares was sitting down with my Nokomis, my grandma. And I know whenever I had those really tough times, I would go sit with her because she's lived, you know, she's lived many years, you know, in Gobe and she's seen ups and downs and she, she walks with grace. My granny's name is Grace, but she truly walks with grace in this world. She and she always looks at uh, turning a negative into a positive, and I think that's that's what's helped me through a lot of these nightmares. Is looking at where's the positive, you know, where's the light in in these dark times, and then there's the knowing that I'm not alone, you know, it, and knowing that if I don't go through this, if I give up, then other people that were probably looking up to me, or other people in my network in the ice network. They they will not gain if I don't learn these obstacles. So I thought about that too. It's important that we keep hanging on and, and work through this because we're not alone. I love how AJ so beautifully put that as always and, and really appreciated him sharing this story and this this deep story with us and some of the amazing people in his life that he can rely on. And I'm really seeing the themes in this interview. And I remember reflecting on this when we were speaking with AJ James um, about climbing this mountain and, and knowing you're not alone. So for the work that you do, and as you're going through things, how do you see getting up the mountain? And what are some things that you feel help you get there and work through it? Mm-hmm. 
you know, I, I'm so privileged and blessed to have an amazing support system, my family, my friends, uh, my, my colleagues at work and everything, um, makes, makes, you know, what is usually very challenging, a little bit more bearable, but just knowing that I have that, that unconditional love and support out there makes me feel like motivated enough to, you know, make them proud. But I suppose that even if I didn't have that support system, I can always think about my nephew, Isaiah, and all the children ahead of us and think about the kind of love and support that they have that aren't necessarily communicated to me, per se, but the kind of love and support that I want to give to them through this meaningful work of making sure that the land and the water, the the earth is basically protected for them. And even thinking about my ancestors and honoring the, the amount of work that they put in to put me in this very place to be faced with whatever task that's ahead of me. James, thank you so much for sharing those insights and those motivators behind behind the work that you do. I resonate with so much of what you've said. And I think, you know, sometimes it can be really overwhelming. There's there's a lot of news that is very heavy. And sometimes the more that we learn and the more that our eyes are open, things can really weigh. But on the other side of the coin, there's so much hope and inspiration in stories that we hear like AJ's and in lessons we take from elders and from others who have gone through similar experiences and hearing some of the the incredible and powerful youth coming forward and reclaiming identity and culture and spaces. I think it's all so beautiful. And it's definitely what inspires me to to keep going. I'm so glad you're saying that because, you know, one thing that comes to mind when I think about decolonizing power as well is, is this restoration of love, you know, in our, in our communities is basically a key piece to undoing a lot of the harms that came with colonization and, you know, the, the legacy of those destructive energy projects when it comes down to it, it's about that love for the land and for the earth, for our kids and and for our ancestors. You're so right, James. And again, really bringing in that theme of decolonizing power. It, it's coming from a place of, of community and well-roundedness. It's not about the individual. And I think that that's a piece that really comes into play in this series, because it's not about the one, it's about the whole. The term all my relations comes to mind and thinking of all of the interconnectedness and, and seven generations ahead. It, it's what it's about. And you're right. If we can really, really bring in that love, I think it, it can help ground us in the work that we do and how we walk about the earth. Absolutely. As, as you speak, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, the collective, you know, the community, the, the coexistence, you know, these are all, these are all central to indigenous ways of knowing and, and it couldn't be more aligned with, with clean energy projects. So wonderfully put James and really bringing back that collective and community approach into life and work and everything else is what it's all about. And speaking of, I think we get into that here with our interview with AJ when he's talking about community presence and engagement and 
sharing a bit of how he felt from the beginning to the end of his project. Uh, once I was hired on, there was a, a email that was sent out, you know, that I was the new uh, hired uh, Mushkawizio and Energy Project Coordinator to all JV partners and, and service providers for Gold Bay. And then we got started on doing information sessions for the community, one for on reserve and one for off reserve. So doing that, getting the information and, and having OPG and involved in these information sessions uh, so that community members are aware uh, of this project that we're about to venture in. Well, how do we get certain demographics within the community involved? you know, elders, youth. I've learned uh, through the 2020 catalyst, you know, we can do some clean energy bingo for the elders. We can do clean energy jeopardy for the youth. And so, you know, tying those with energy and, and doing some workshops, saving some nights during during the month, let's host at least one of each. And then also doing newsletters um, for the community. Um, really engaging, having the information out there of what's to come and what what we went through in the newsletters, and then tying in some what's happening across Canada with energy, uh, some activity pages for the kids and the adults. I think I've like went a little bit overboard on the newsletters. It's almost like a magazine now. Uh, that was part of the community engagement and me being accessible, you know. Uh, in the community and having an office there, having my a cell phone, even though there's no cell phone service, but you know, um, I'm able to uh, look at my cell or get messages if I'm in a Wi-Fi, and um, you know, just being at the office. If anybody ever had questions and you know they didn't feel like presenting or, or putting their hands up at an information session or coming to a uh, energy night you know, to come and come and ask questions. I'll put some tea on, you know, and just come in and talk. We would like to take a moment to express our gratitude to all of the Indigenous and global community members, national Indigenous organizations, key governments, clean energy and development assistance agencies, microgrid developers, utilities, academic institutes, and other organizations who have contributed to this podcast. A particular expression of appreciation to Natural Resources Canada and the Clean Energy for Remote Communities team for supporting this podcast and Indigenous clean energy projects and programming from coast to coast to coast. I would also like to express a deep gratitude to the ICE team. Thank you for the support and the collaborative effort on this project. And thank you all for your tireless work to take action and make changes for an inclusive and just clean energy transition. You know, for for our members and our audience members who are out there considering a microgrid project to start in their community um, or just learning about it, you know, the, the key to, or one of the keys to, to getting started is for sure establishing those partnerships. But, you know, there's there's a lot of things to keep in mind when reaching out to other organizations and, and to the government and, and so forth um, to make sure that the partnership is, is balanced and fair. Um, I'm just wondering if, if there was anything or any advice that you would give to people who are thinking about microgrids in their communities and and how to approach partnerships? Yeah, that's a good question. It's got to have some good, honest conversations 
at the beginning? You know, what are what are the objectives that the community are hoping to get out of that relationship, and what are the objectives that the the partner is hoping to achieve? And then having some common objectives. I think that's another thing that we shared with the community in our community engagement process is those objectives that um, OPG had, those objectives that Gold Bay had, and the shared objectives. So that, you know, there was benefits to the community. Gold Bay wanted to make sure that through this project, there was benefits that the community was going to be achieving and not just the microgrid. You know, whether that be, you know, capacity building, um, ownership of the asset, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then for OPG, they were, they were learning about microgrids. They're, we were going to be sharing data that we're learning for the next 20 years off this microgrid with them. You know, and then this is an opportunity, a good social license uh, project for them. You know, so there was win-wins on both sides. You know, we both uh, shared the objective of reducing diesel use, saving the environment and reducing our impacts to climate change, empowering the youth. You know, and I think that's important to really establish that. And if you had a partner that, you know, had a strained relationship in the past, you need to reconcile that. You need to deal with that and reconcile so that that relationship can move forward in, in a healthy and, and positive way. And I think that's to deal with those wrongdoings in the past, have, you know, a past grievance settlement, and then not just an apology and then that's that's good enough, but also a project that they can work on to really strengthen this this new relationship. And it's my grandma said it, and, and my Nokma said it. There can be a, a past grievance settlement, but you know the hurt will always remain unless you have a forgiving heart. So knowing that the pain's always going to be there, the story's going to be there, but at least we're moving together now in a good way, and at least we're we're talking to one each other, working working together. And and I'm not going to steer your canoe, and you're not going to steer mine, but we're going and paddle together. And we're not going to rough up the waters. And I think that's that's what it means. And I think that's when you're establishing these relationships with partners, companies, and stuff like that. If you have some past that needs dealing with, deal with them. And then work together. Those are some great analogies, AJ. And I love the imagery of you and your community steering your own canoe and forging your own path. So through these partnerships, then, how did you feel you and your community's values were asserted? And maybe could you walk us through some of those conversations and also why you feel it's important that your values are integrated within these projects? Well, if you didn't assert your values or assert your rights or assert your where your boundaries are, and then, you know, that just allows the partner or that other person to walk beyond it or walk all over it. You got to be assertive. And if it's not going your way, then you don't sign the agreement. You push the meeting back until the two figure out a way that works. And an example would be the water treatment facility in our community. It's It was not built to snuff. It was built in a poor location. You know, it was built against the advice from the elders. And, uh, you know, for a long time, INAC wanted, uh, wanted Gold Bay Chief Wilfred King to accept that project and, and, and continue on. But it was, you know, there were so many reasons not to accept it. And, and we just didn't accept it. You know, Chief didn't accept it. So finally, because it was 
built in a poor location because it wasn't built to code. The pipes were all wrong too. We finally got it built in the right location and it's because we didn't accept it. So you got to search your, your rights. You got to search your grounds. And it's, it may take five years, may take 10 years. It's, it's just, unfortunately, it, it takes that long. Hopefully, you know, we start to, the, the governments or utilities or companies, big corps like that, start to realize, okay, you know what? We could have did better last time. Maybe we'll, we'll do good now with this new understanding and new relationship. Um, because I can tell you that Gold Bay First Nation and Indigenous Service Canada now have a better relationship, you know, with their new understanding and with successful projects that are happening and all the positive things that are happening in Gold Bay now. It's because we worked through those times and we weren't going to settle for for half-made stuff or stuff that wasn't built to code or stuff that wasn't going to function. And, uh, you know, we're first-class people. We're not second-class citizens here. I just read in the Global Mail that Terry Lynn Moore, so at, at the end of it, it it's almost like it, we're, we're desensitized for Native people to, to live in poverty. And why is that? That's such a sad, true statement. We're accepting the fact that that's just the way it is. No, we're the first people here. You know, we've taken care of the first boats that came here. We should, you know, see the humanity and, and the ways and the love that we give each other and we give the land. Because when we give the land love too, it takes care of us. We know that. So I think that, you know, hopefully the government and, you know, the companies and corporations, you know, they want our, they want our resources or the resources that are land, but they got to come and build relationships with the First Nation communities around that. I think there's a lot of opportunities for governments and companies and organizations to really sit down with Indigenous communities and work on plans to help make Canada a better place, and especially with clean tech, because clean tech is going to hold high considerations of the environment and of the water, of the animals, of the plants, of our next future generation. AJ, I think I could re-listen to these words over and over and still learn and reflect more. I can feel your community's passion and action and empowerment through your words, And as you've said, we must move forward in a way that is respectful of Indigenous peoples, respectful of the land, of the waters, and of the animals, and so much more, and ground that respect in action. There's such deep value that comes from integrating your community's perspectives and participation into these clean energy projects uh, from environmental, social, rights-based perspectives among others. And I think that that's so important and relevant in these times and for all partners and potential partners to see that this can be done in a sustainable and just way. Yes, you're right, Freddie. Um, And I'm glad that you mentioned partnerships and, and potential partners because partnerships are a critical element to moving microgrid projects forward uh, where they can leverage their strength and, and help overcome barriers um, that would otherwise be, you know, handled alone. And one such barrier, of course, is the financing piece, where working with project partners like public banks, government agencies, or utilities, for example, can help communities receive things like grants, low interest debt, and so much more. And so with that, AJ, I'm curious to know, how did your project overcome these financing barriers? You know, having that 
those calls with funders, going and, and checking out what's out there for funding, uh, joining webinars, information sessions on funding. But, you know, from the get-go, from the beginning, it was working together with OPG's team, project management team, at, at these proposal writings. Chief and Council advocated. I really want to thank their advocacy and probably doesn't get enough credit. Uh, leadership can be tricky, um, but I'm really, in this case, I think it's it, it was certainly a strength. But it's that advocacy of that wrongdoing in the past. You know, you have these past grievances. And when we talk about securing funding, we were talking at the first of what impacts these dams and flooding cause in our community. The harm, but not only the harm, but these were economic activities that benefited Ontario and Canada, but did not benefit our community. There was megawatts of power that were made from these dams that flooded our, our community's watersheds. Not, a, not a, a light bulb was turned on from that power in our community. No revenues, no partnerships were developed, not even any communication to our community. When Chief and Council advocated, we, we had to advocate for that funding. And that was part of our, part of the community stands. Like, you know what? We certainly didn't want to pay for anything for this microgrid project. And we had our fair share of not being included or not having any benefits. So I think that was a strong advocacy on our part and a big eye opener for funders and governments and utilities to acknowledge that and to figure out how to get the funding. I'm glad that you raised that. Because in a, in a fair and just world, you know, this funding shouldn't be the burden of the community, um, especially when we're talking about infrastructure gaps and, and making energy systems more resilient. And when we close the gap on infrastructure and, and bring more resilient energy solutions to communities, it also brings a whole series of external benefits, um, side projects, we're talking about human resources development, training, jobs. And so for you, AJ, what were the unexpected project benefits and secondary impacts from, from this project in your community um, for economic development or even for the environment? That's a great question. Of course, there's the, uh, you know, the environmental benefits uh, and the revenue from selling solar power to Hydro One remotes instead of them buying diesel from somewhere else. But some of the other economic impacts, I guess, so to say, I think for me, we haven't really started doing it because of the COVID stuff too, but because of it's, it's the first of its kind, we want to share and we want to host a boot camp, a renewable energy off-grid, you know, diesel reduction boot camp, so to say, in the community. It's not going to be like huge economic engine but it's going to invite people to our community it's going to have other indigenous communities off-grid communities to come into our community post-covid of course to you know maybe buy some crafts or or check out the local area and do some hikes and and to really op start opening that door for more opportunities we're definitely feeling the empowerment to to empower others even though the jetsons are nothing like probably clean technology, but it's futuristic. And thinking of like the Jetsons, if we weren't living in space, if we're living in our own First Nations community, but it's very futuristic and very environmentally conscious, you know, very in tune with trying to take care of the, the resources and the economic prosperity for our future generations. 
at least people might be thinking, you know what, Gold Bay looks like a pretty cool place I want to go check out. You know, I'm certainly loving the beauty that's in my home community, the people, the laughs, the fishing, the, the scenery, and the, the animals. Like, we had a partridge in our porch there uh, last spring, just chilling out. So, I mean, like, you know, it's it's just nice being close to to nature, being close to so much beauty and, and, and to being able to maybe share that and having others come in and enjoy that. There's some economic opportunities there, relationship building opportunities. Seem, to me, anyways, looks like, you know, good future. Thanks for adding that in, AJ. I never have much to add on after we speak because your words are so meaningful. Um, but I just want to thank you uh, so much uh, on behalf of everyone from ICE and and just James and I. It's been such an honor to, to host um, this podcast episode today and just really want to thank you um, and share uh, my deep gratitude um, for your words that I think will spark conversation and just to, to share with us your story and your community story of of energy sovereignty um, and resilience. It's it's incredibly powerful. And yeah, it's it's just an honor to be speaking with you. So thank you. Chi miigwech, Freddie, and chi miigwech, James. The doors are always open for you two and other catalysts and ICE Network and, you know, people that want to come in and really enjoy KZA and all its beauty. And as long as I ask that when you come, come with an open heart and open mind and really don't leave anything behind that is negative or impacts our, the people and, and the environment in a negative way. Um, but certainly welcome. Such an awesome message to end off on. Thank you so much again, AJ. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you and visiting sometime uh, in the near future. Me too. <laughs> James, in closing of these two episodes and in our whole conversation with AJ, what were some pieces that really stuck out to you? It's it's uh it's so funny because that we're that we're doing this podcast series because traditionally speaking, a lot of Indigenous peoples uh, across Turtle Island carry their history uh, orally uh, and through through storytelling, and so. In addition to all the things that, that are in total alignment with clean microgrids and, and you know, Indigenous ways of knowing, it was also told in, in a way that is aligned with how we told stories, how, how we carry about the, the history and, and the legacies of, of what our ancestors um, done for us. And, and in a way, I just love how AJ carries himself and... and you know, sees himself as an ancestor. That to me moved me. And, um, you know, we're, we're sharing the story digitally, of course, on a podcast. But at the end of the day, we're telling stories in a way that our ancestors also told their stories. So, so amazing, James. And I could not agree with you more. There is an indescribable power in storytelling and the way that AJ describes some of these things he really brought it back to his community but also to his experience and that's something that really spoke to me how he was able to carry on with hope and strength and 
sometimes that didn't come from within. It came from folks in his community. It came from the buzz of his project and being able to carry it forward for the next generations. And to me, it's so amazing to be able to have a vision and and really see it through. Please tune in to our next episode on June 30th, where we will journey to Noidart, a peninsula on the west coast of Scotland. From my journeys over to the Scottish Highlands a few years back, and seeing how beautiful these lands are, along with the inspiring stories from the people of Noidart on what they're doing to protect these gorgeous lands, this is an episode you won't want to miss. Making a mission to make a transition, better decisions and lower emissions, develop advanced energy systems, enhance transition, remote microgrids, indigenous smart kids on smart grids. We are the future, we know what it is, we know our needs, the future of the kids. It's time to take over as owners in this. This podcast is produced by Indigenous Clean Energy with production assistance and edits by Alexandra Jericho, music by Quinton Condo, cover art by Tara Miller and the many other souls who have supported and made it possible. We are grateful for you all. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast. And to connect with us and our wonderful Indigenous clean energy community, you can visit us at icenet.org. You can also find Indigenous clean energy on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you. Hi, hi.